Welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Hello, I'm Timothy Quinn, President of the Wellsell Group, a top 66 furniture retailer and one of the largest Ashley Home Store ownership groups in the country. We've been actively using stores for several months now. When converting to a new point-of-sale system, the ultimate goal is to gain a return on your investment. This year, we anticipate saving around $1.5 million in operational efficiencies because we transitioned to Stores, a retail software solution designed for the furniture industry. We're finding ways to better utilize our internal resources and deliver a more effective customer experience. And that's just the ROI that is clearly defined. We're finding many more streamlined processes that you can't put a price on. Is your technology increasing your profitability? Ours is. Learn more at stores.com today. Welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is Caroline Hippel, president of Norwalk Furniture and a an industry veteran and expert at building things, turning things around, and getting stuff moving in the right direction. Welcome, Caroline. Well, it's good to be here, Bill. This is fun. Yeah, it is. One of these days, we'll have to invite you to our new state-of-the-art studio where uh, that we just built. So, oh, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Um, so we um, before we went on air, we've talked a little bit about um, your history and your experience. Um, how you, you bring a unique perspective to the business in that you have been a retailer. Tell uh, our audience a little bit about your retail experience and how you grew up in the business. I did start as a retailer, as an accidental retailer, in, as, as it turns out, but it was one of the best decisions I've made in my life. Um, I, my two retail companies that I was a part of um, building or turning around were this end up furniture company and storehouse and um so this end up was a a an amazing uh inventive company that sold furniture that some people say looked like shipping crates and in fact the first piece was made from a shipping crate and our brilliant um president of the retail division Stuart brown had the idea that we should be in regional malls and we were the first furniture company to be in regional malls and we grew from one store to 250 stores in about 15 10 years maybe and i got to be a part of that growth and at the i started part-time in sales and with a furious father who thought i was was going to throw away my education by selling shipping crates (laughs) uh to being the head of 250 stores for stores, uh, sales, marketing, merchandising, real estate. Um, and so it was a great learning lesson. And it, it was so amazing to watch how our culture was at 10 stores, 50 stores, 100 stores, 200 stores, and to see what kind of shifts we had to make internally to make sure our external self that had been so successful stayed consistent. So, yeah, it That's, was really good. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that a little bit because there are a lot of companies right now that are trying to achieve 
rapid growth in the furniture business, whether they're on the manufacturing or the retail side, and making that cultural transition from being a, an entrepreneurial startup um, where everybody kind of sits in the same space and you get things done by yelling across the office um, to being a far-flung organization that's that's a big shift in the communication and uh, all of the, the cultural uh, learning that has to take place. Tell me a little bit about what you did and how you, you kind of uh, wrestled with that as, uh, as this end-up group. You know, in, in the lessons are evergreen because they apply today just like they did when we were founding and growing this end-up. And it has to do with um, the people and what their expectations are. So you have to get the right people in the right place. We learned, first of all, before something like uh, the book In Search of Excellence came out, we had already started working on shared values, but we were delighted when that book came out because it sort of reinforced what we were doing. We realized when we were small that there are key principles and values that were making us successful. And then we learned that as we grew, we had to have a really clear and tangible way to export that same behavior, those same values from Miami to Seattle and Portland, Maine to San Diego. So we learned how to select people. So getting the right people in the right place and then intensive training in terms of management development, leadership, sales training because we were a retail company um, uh, and then within all of that training very organized very structured um, the values were reinforced clarified and then we spent a lot of time training the managers who manage people how to do so and those my first 13 years at this end up were running regions and stores, store manager, district manager, regional manager. And and we, we ran stores and we ran trucks. So we had to handle the distribution side and the retail side. And so it was a great foundation in organizational development, if you will, and operations. Um, then I got to do, go into what my passion was, which was marketing and merchandising and the product side and the customer connection side. But I can do all that I do today because I had that early foundation of the operations of the business. How do you um, manage communications as an organization grows? Because I've, I find that as organizations typically get larger um, and decision making gets farther flung, um, you, you become more bureaucratic, right? There's more layers to communicate across. Were there some things that you did to, um, to streamline that or to prevent size from getting in the way we really believe and still do did then um participative management where you have a structure where the person that's involved that's going to be affected by a decision that's made is involved as best you can and that communication comes from organizational structure i think it comes from intention from the top then do you have um key goal-setting meetings that you go tops down bottoms up do you then report on the progress that you're making does every employment group like a department um, do they know what their part to play in in reaching those goals does the person in the department know what their part to play is and is the company communicating on a constant cycle how we're doing how are you doing and 
and are you then so so part of it is the structure of meetings the structure today of conference calls or or webinars or there are so many tools today but it all starts with that initial clear goals that everybody knows what their part to play is and that comes through participating participation in setting the goals and we know employees are happiest when they know what the studies show that employees are happy if they have a friend at work if their manager sees them knows them understands what their wants and needs are and if they identify with the company's goals so and that they, if their goals are clear so our job as leaders is to make sure that we're on the right path. We, we, we have a vision that we have goals everybody knows them and then we go back and report I think that's the basis of communication now there's all sorts of other com- everyday communication but you we also feel like you don't want to be over meeting and so we kind of do skunk work tinker toys if there's a problem you bring together the people to solve the problem and then they go out and do their thing mm-hmm. I don't know you know so I think communication is often the bad guy for when the structure is really not thought out does now, that make sense yeah absolutely um now storehouse that that experience uh storehouse kind of exists still today um in a new form but that uh, ultimately ended up not going as smoothly as it uh as it could yeah, have. well so it was a wonderful um opportunity when i came on board at storehouse it was a turnaround i was losing a lot of money but we did turn it around, and the experience of in turning it around was amazing. It was owned by Rowe Ro Corporation, which also owned Mitchell Gold, um, Rowe Upholstery Manufacturing, Storehouse, at one point something called Home Elements that was um, blended in to become one company, Storehouse, and uh, a case goods company called Wexford that then was sold. So... Uh, <clears throat> In the end, Row Upholstery put in SAP, and it was it was really tough on the business. And so, they filed Chapter 11, and Sun Capital bought Row Manufacturing um, out of out of bankruptcy and did not want retail. So they decided to liquidate Storehouse for the inventory value to help them in their plan to reemerge. Basically, a a short story of a long story. Well, just I'm just going to backtrack because I kind of um, I transitioned awkwardly there. There was an awkward segue from this end up to storehouse. But this end up ultimately you you left there that um, that that chain uh, ultimately uh, went chapter 11. It it, this end up was another very interesting you know, in the course of my career, I've had many successes and faced some really tough challenges. And uh, the challenges, what I've learned in my life is the hard lessons have ended up being the biggest blessings because you learn so much through difficulties. At this end up, one of the cool things is we learn to thrive under three states of um, ownership. With 10 years as the entrepreneur-led company, uh, then Melville, which owned CBS and 14 other specialty divisions, bought us, and we lived that way for um, probably about eight years, I think. And then 
Melville wanted to spin everything else off and become CVS. And we bought ourselves this end up with Citicorp Venture Capital. Uh, Melville put in a new president. He wanted to change our distribution systems overnight. We all voted against it. He did it, and it cost us to um, go out of business. And all those things in the middle of that, all those decisions, watching those decisions, then trying to keep it alive in spite of it, all were such good business experiences, painful for all of us because we loved that company. But in the end, it helped my skills greatly. And so the next adventure after this end up was um, Jerry Burnback um, invited me to come to Storehouse to um, – it was a great storehouse was a venerable brand founded by robert curry of curry and company he left um and and the business was never the same after he left so roe bought it and um when then our challenge was to enliven it and um what had some great people and it just had not been loved in a while and so we found several challenges when we first got there that were um, signs of uh, an employee group that was dispirited and didn't feel engaged. So that was job one, to create, bring those lessons of an engaged culture to Storehouse while we were also changing the merchandising, changing the marketing, right-sizing our real estate. And we did it. We had 36 months of double-digit same-store sales after we executed our plan. And um, we feel so good about what happened. The the chapter eleven had nothing to do with the storehouse piece. Um, it had to do with the the sister company. But but everybody's all fine now, and everybody that was involved in that is in great places and doing um, you know leading great companies. Let's talk about the lesson of um, cultural turnaround. When you were at this end up, that was learning to take a culture and scale it. Um, at Storehouse, you said you came in and there was kind of a dispirited culture. From a tactical standpoint, when you come into a, a new situation and you, you need to turn morale around, what are some of the first steps that you take? Listen, you know, that is really the first thing. And well, the first thing when we went to Storehouse is we didn't want to make any quick decisions although you had to make some because <laughs> the turnaround was like changing the propeller on a plane while you're flying in a rainstorm. So you have to do things. You can't just say, I'm not doing anything. But our thought was do no harm, you know, and so until you really know what you have. Often you'll see people go in and like cut heads and do all sorts of things, but we wanted to make sure we knew what was great about it and I think this is in any company that you're trying to push forward. You have to understand what the core goodness is and the core uh, uniqueness is in these companies. And then you have to look at things you can shed. And so so we went around and we knew we, we there was an embezzlement ring. There was all sorts of stuff that was we uncovered in the first months of listening. You know, it was not for the faint of heart. But they were all signs, again, of people that weren't feeling, you know, nurtured or nourished by the company. So so we went around to all the stores and listened hard. We've started to form uh, 
communications architecture, which there hadn't been there before. And we then decided to to create of um, a way of having people included in the process of planning. And so we didn't announce a strategic plan for about a year or a year and a half. We had a working title plan, but we wanted to get everybody's involvement. So it really took we we crafted it through departments and people and rolling up to our executive team over a year and a half. We had a plan during that early year. But what but the way what I'm, I really believe that if you get 100 percent of somebody's involvement versus them doing 50 percent of what you want them to do, it's better. You get better energy and better results if someone's doing what they believe is the right thing for them and their team. And the way you do that is get them involved in the planning. And that's what we started with on the culture. And then with the other thing we really learned in, uh, in both of those companies is that the real energy in a company is the relationship between the manager and the employee. That's where the real sort of um, feel goods and the course corrections happen. And so we wanted to make sure our managers were new leadership skills, knew how to have difficult conversations with a positive outcome. So we set about having lots of training for the trainers, if you will, and the managers. And um, and I can tell you that it was, you know, just such a powerful force to see it work. And one example of that was during Katrina, we had stores in New Orleans and I was at the Maison and MJ when the hurricane was happening and on the phone with our CFO and we're like, it's looking bad for, you know, so many people suffered in that. Our stores did too. And um, by the time I got back, our company had decided that employees all over the company were donating vacation hours so we could keep those people play, paid for as long as it took for the rebuild to happen. And that was a long time. So where it paid off, though, so that was purely out of the goodness of the team of the whole company 70 stores and um and but when it came time to reopen which was like a year or a year and a half later the most in demand were delivery truck drivers and our drivers and helpers were had been like offered three times as much pay to come back and that's what was happening down there but they wouldn't do it because we'd get them whole the whole time so that's just one example of when a culture works together. It's really beautiful. Hmm. Now, Norwalk, when you got there, also a turnaround situation. Um, you didn't start out initially as the president at Norwalk. You were brought in as a consultant. Share a little that's bit right. about how that about how that evolved and um, you know how how you you viewed that situation when you got there. Well, and I, just to clarify, Norwalk is not quite a turnaround. It was a startup of an old company. <laughs> so it's a 116-year-old brand that uh, in, the, in 2008, like many companies, went out of business. But it only went out of business for six weeks because 12 families in the community, formerly unrelated to Norwalk Furniture, banded together and bought the assets to keep the jobs in the community. So when, and then, and then those, that families called us HB2 to, um, to consult in the strategic startup and reinvention. So I call Norwalk a reinvention and because we started from zero <laughs> and, um, but 
with that what we had to do and 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 talk about the power of culture when you see a workforce that lost their jobs for six weeks and then they got them back they saw that the grass wasn't greener on the other side came back and the spirit is so remarkable it's such a privilege to be a part of working with that team um, because we got to say what was the best of norwalk and what do we always want to preserve it's that goes back to those values again and then what do we want to do differently with this company with these assets with these people to meet the market for today and how can we can take advantage of you know stripping away everything that was now let's bring back what we want to bring back and then let's add some innovation and newness for the market today so when i when we then so we worked on strategy as consultants with the the team and then they invited us to work on the fabrics and the products so we became the adjunct merchants for years and um we really worked on you know getting great locations in our showrooms in high point and at vegas so and with lots of glass so we could open up the windows and show people that we were available norwalk was a franchise system mostly before their shutdown there are no longer franchises and we wanted to tell the story by being so open and transparent and visible and so then so it was both a metaphor and a strategy yes totally totally so you know just that whole big glass colorful energy you know and you know delight surprise and delight with our customers hospitality making people feel welcome and then having innovative fabrics and we really set out to have uh what we hope to be the best fabric line in our category in the industry and and took some risks with that and the risks continue to pay off in terms of um look and feel and merchandising for our dealers and their customers uh so then um i guess four years ago now in 2016 our, the existing president, Mike Kenny, was retiring, and so um, one of the board members was an interim president, and then they hired us to find a new president. And we spent six months in my Rolodex and and lots of interviews and 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 boiled it down and found a great woman, and she couldn't she accepted. She was moving from New Jersey, and then her father-in-law got ill and she couldn't come. And so then the board said, well, why don't you do it? <laughs> so that's how I became the president of Norwalk Furniture. And, but I'm delighted to be doing so. Techadvisory.org clearly articulates that before purchasing new technology, it's wise to consider its return on investment. At Storis, we couldn't agree more. Our company is celebrating 30 years alongside many partnerships spanning decades because we believe in long-term strategic relationships. In fact, one of the first steps in our sales cycle is determining the ways stores will benefit the multiple facets of your business's operations and how we can help you gain an ROI. As a retailer, you encourage your customers to buy products that add value to their lives. We believe the same should apply to you. If you're looking for technology to empower your business, Stores is here to help. Learn more at stores.com today. I'm Caitlin Jazuski. Thanks for listening. So you were an accidental retailer to start, and you're kind of an accidental president now. <laughs> it's true. It just and the lesson in that is don't take yourself too seriously. <laughs> let 
led the world, you know, along the way, getting to know what I'm good at and what, you know, I think we all have different strengths and weaknesses. Like, for example, I took piano for six years and I can play chopsticks. It is not my gift. My sister's a great musician. I am not. But, but I love building things. I love creating things. I love building companies. I love putting people in the profit picture because I really believe the way you treat people is everything about how profitable you are. And that's such an intangible thing. And I'm a fabric nerd. I tell you, I, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, be buried with fabric swatches all around me. But just, I just love that part of our business. And, and I think it's an important one. Um, so, so the invisible hand has pushed me along often into places that were well beyond my skill set. And I've had mentors and wonderful people along the way that believed that I could do more than I believed I could do. Who, who were some and, of your mentors? Um, so, well, I have to go back to the uh, Stuart and Libby Brown, who are the founders of, of this end up. And Stuart was my boss for a long time. And he, he and then um, two other women at this end up, three, really, Liz Davis, who was my partner and friend in the business, and we supported each other. Sarah Flemmer was my boss. Ashton Williams helped me grow. They were all like the vice president of sales when I was starting or the vice president of operations. Um, but Stuart really pushed all of us to look at ourselves honestly, strengths and weaknesses, and build on the strengths and work on minimizing the weaknesses. And as a 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26-year-old young executive, that was no easy thing. And I am so grateful for it today, uh, just that honest communication with care. And it is the difference in courageous management, if you ask me. And I was lucky to receive it early. And What do you mean by courageous management? Define that for me. Well, I think one of the hardest things to do is to have difficult conversations with your employees that you do care about, but you know they're screwing up <laughs> or, or not, you know, but they could be doing something better or they were not recognizing something in themselves. And to have that conversation and have a positive outcome takes courage on the deliverer of the not-so-happy news part. Does that make sense? Yeah. Walk me through. <clears throat> Let's pretend that I am um, one of your managers in training. Walk me through how to have a difficult conversation. Well, the, you know, in this end up, we always had one thing to work on. That was sort of one of our standards is what are you, and Stuart would say, well, what are you working on? Or I would say, you know, so with one of my employees, one of my store managers when I was a district manager, you know, what is we've identified and what the core is, that person has identified themselves what they want to work on. Now, if you're good, you help them identify it. But it, the, it's better when they identify it themselves. And usually people know what they need to work on. And it's usually the same thing you think it is. So you know, in in a monthly sit down, it we would on a monthly visit when I would be visiting the stores we would review sales their people all of that and then we'd say well let's talk about what you're working on and then so you get into it that way it's not 
you're not like swooping down from above and saying you need to do this. It's t- tell me about what you're doing to improve your performance. And it might be, uh, you know, I've got to manage more directly with my own people, which is often the case. It's all about huh, being able to establish a foundation of caring, uh, not not ooey gooey caring, caring about people's activities and their performance in their lives. And when people know you care, then you can get and and they trust that you have their best interest at heart. You can really work on that difficult stuff, you know. Um, and uh, that's part of it. You have to have this foundation of trust and caring. And then you have to have a regular conversation so it's expected. And so the more you do it, the more the person comes to you and said, let me just tell you what I'm working on. So it's setting up that whole process of having um, talking about the hard stuff. But that's what my mentors did for me. Um, talk about the hard stuff. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I was 23. I had nine stores, 45 people to manage. Moved by myself to Philadelphia to do it. Let me just tell you, I met myself that year. <laughs> <laughs> I made every mistake in the world from people management. And, and Stuart and Sarah and Libby and Ashton and my friend Liz were all there in different ways to get me over that hump. And then I wanted to go to Boston to try to open the Boston region to see if I could do it better and faster. And this end up thought I was crazy to do it, but I did it. And it, and I also learned there the, um, it's good to repeat. You know, we've gone through school learning, thinking repeating is bad, but I'm here to tell you that repeating, doing things one, two, three times really reinforces behavior. And, um, and ha- having done one district two ways was great foundation for me. But um, what do you mean by repeating? Um, well, here's here, here's the non-business example I have. In ninth grade, I took Latin one and I made a B, but I didn't like the teacher and I didn't think I'd done it very well. So when I moved schools to tenth grade, I asked to take Latin all over again, Latin one. And they said, why? You made a B. And I said, because I think I didn't get a good enough foundation. And so I took I was took it again, and I was the best Latin student, or the next to the best Latin student. Melissa was better than me. But <laughs> <laughs> I was the best Latin student in my class. And I learned then in 10th grade that repeating things to learn is a good thing. And... So for me, I, I um, had to grow the Philadelphia region to nine stores, and then I opened the Boston region for this end up and opened 10 stores, and I did it so much faster, better. I mean, I was still – it was a very successful region in Philadelphia, but the Boston, it just hummed, and I believe it was from the repeating the skill of leading it. Does that make sense? Yes. And how does that apply now to what you're doing with Norwalk? Do you still so, repeat things? Um, yes, in some ways. Um, it, it, with Norwalk, again, I, we have been really careful not to throw out what has always worked for Norwalk, which is 
as a really um, the plant is amazing the people that make the product are amazing and they work well together and the people in the field know the product know the company and know their they have a real customer intimacy and so we've tried to keep that alive and grow it and so so often when people CEOs come in they want to put their footprint on it because then they think they're doing their job I think that's a mistake I think you see your footprint emerge by taking your foot off of the company and letting the company tell you what it needs to be and then you help I mean I feel like my job and this is a repeat in some weird way of all my jobs is to understand the market and your company helps me do that really well <laughs> um you know uh, you know really understand what is the nature of the market where is it going where has it been and what is our place in it and then devising strategies to help our products find their way in our market which is no easy feat with as fragmented as our market is but then from there looking inside it's to set up this structure and the culture that makes people feel empowered and going out and doing their jobs and they know what they're supposed to do to meet that market that's a repeat for me in every one of these companies and it's what i do and um and the other repeat is um having a darwinian merchandising um merchandising philosophy which is the best keep thriving and the worst just go away darwinian merchandising means that um we do a lot of trend work we do a lot of creative work so that we can provide products that are on trend but then we let the market tell us whether we've done our job right or not so the best survive the okay may be tweaked and the things that aren't working they just go and we are we are we're dutiful about that you know we put 125 fabrics in each season we take 125 out um so is it that rigorous yeah oh yeah and it's and it hurts let me just tell you for somebody that loves fabrics i'm like i don't want to see this one go but you have to because that's the way you stay fresh and yeah it is that rigorous and it's painful and 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 not everyone loves your decision but then what i found over all the years whether it's this end up storehouse or norwalk and is that everybody says but my customer wants this but when you show them the data it doesn't hold so data is king <laughs> you think that merchandising is all about art there's so much science in it and data really is the ob object to fire in the whole thing. So knowing what's selling at your key customers, what's selling overall in the whole company, and then are there any regional variations? So you have to understand all of that to be able to feel good about making those rigorous decisions. What's the difference between <clears throat> being on trend and just a little too far out in front of the trend have there been times <laughs> no sales <laughs> that would be the difference <laughs> if you're too far out it doesn't sell but have you um, ever yes, had an instance are. where something um you were too far out it didn't sell and then because i've heard people in other categories say you know we had this in our line for years and it didn't sell and then all of a sudden now everybody's doing it and um have you had instances where 
you were a little ahead of the curve and um you know dixon and i um have dixon is our head of merchandising our chief creative officer at norwalk and was with me at the send up and at uh storehouse um we've been traveling the world since 2000 with trend work in mind and so we have like a color cycle chart now and yes we have made mistakes and but there's nothing like betting with your pocketbook to really make you pay attention and what we've devised over the years is sort of a good better best merchandising philosophy but it's you know where you what i'm it but good better best is on a risk spectrum so you your core you know how to merchandise your core and you're not going to do too far out on the edge of that you're going to have some really safe stuff for the good the core is the better and then you have a place that you engineer in risk like we're doing a wild fabric we just picked that everybody's going to think we're crazy and but we know that we're doing that and it's marketing money really and sometimes it sells but so when you know you've got the other field covered the good and the better really well you can allow a little edge for the risk and then people want to know what you're going to do next for that risk so it's it has an energy all of its own so um you know there (laughs) we know that we we can remember many things that didn't sell and it's usually in a fabric and we had an early fabric that we all loved, but the world didn't call Valari. And anytime we see a fabric that's on the risk edge, we go, is this a Valari <laughs> or not? So our, our failures have nicknames. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, you, you were talking about um, having been on the road, you've now developed this um, kind of color spectrum chart. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it's kind of a a rubric, uh, an actual framework that you can use to identify. Well, we we use it in. um, So here's how it goes. So we're watching colors and we'll go to the Maison and O'Shea and we'll define what we think is the forward company. You know, because we do think Europe is a little ahead of us, and the palette in Europe is different, but it does influence us. So we'll see things there, and then we'll we might be in China looking at you know the Guangzhou show, or we might be, you know, some we we on a regular basis are looking at design capitals of the world, and we are looking at product and color when we're doing that and merchandising display tips. Um, through that, then we come back to our studio and start pinning up color. And then we are online looking at, you know, all the social media and still read magazines. And we're pulling out things that we know are emerging. And when those colors fill up a certain part of the board, we know it's time. I know that sounds kind of unscientific, but we have like four or five different color stories going and then when it comes time to go out and buy fabrics to execute your your collection for the season um we we go with three or four color themes in our mind or or you know theme themes trend themes and we meet with the best of the fabric designers and where their color 
because they aren't doing the same thing we are because they have to bet their pocketbook on dyes and yarns. And so it's very, very expensive for them to make a mistake. Um, so we, where we marry up and we know who our most successful pairings are from a creative vision where our vision marries up with their vision, we know we're on track. And that's taken us years to develop that, years. I mean, we've been buying fabric since 2000. Um, so, um, no, longer than that, since the 90s. But, um, but we've had a trend forecasting process since 2000. And, and so we know sometimes we're a little ahead, but we still think we should. But we try to stay. It's like if you imagine a wave, you you know, you'll see a little bit of this color. Green is really coming on now. We've been seeing green for several seasons, but we're going to really do some things with green this season. Um, But you see it, it's sort of it's like in the low part of the wave. Then all of a sudden it starts to get picked up and then it starts. You want to hit it before it comes down. You know, you want to hit it just on the rise and. You know, and and it really is your sales tell you <laughs> as much as you'd like it to be. Otherwise, you tell them it doesn't work that way. But um, so we carefully watch what sells and we watch it differently for pillows and differently for ottomans and differently for chairs and differently for sofas because they all are a different purpose in the room. So it's a lot of looking <laughs> and watching and trying. So, do you see yourself um, enjoying Norwalk for your career now? Are you sated, content? Is this your um, is this your artistic expression? Do you feel like you've found home? Well, as long as they have me, I'll be there because this it it is um, each of the companies I've been in have been home. And um, and it's been like I say, this invisible hand that has put me in each of them. I've always had a had the view of taking the hardest job in my skill set possible, and to take jobs for what I could learn, not what I could earn. And I've always ended up earning more than I thought I would. But it's never been the earning first. It's been learning first, and listening to the way I found myself to Norwalk you know at one point at this end up we were their Norwalk division had a division called Hickory Hill and we were their largest customer who would ever have thought that I would ended up being the president of Norwalk it's just it it was so unpredictable that I would do it but it is exactly where I should be and using my culture care building meeting the market you know having great intimacy with our customers and then this whole design and fabric and textile component is really wonderful. And um, so, yes, as long as that's what the will of my maker is, I'll be there. <laughs> you know, as long as I can keep getting on a plane. I do commute from Atlanta, but I live in Norwalk during the week and Atlanta on the weekends. So that's an interesting way to do it. Um, but during the interim between, you know, you know, after Storehouse, Dixon Bartlett and I started HB2 as a consulting um, resource to help inventions and reinventions and making invisible tangible. And that's what we're really good at. And the cool thing of that is, you know, I had 20 years at this end up. 
eight years at Storehouse. And then I got through the consulting. We did. We created a, a store in China for a client. We've worked with artists all over the world as licensing brand developers. So, so I got to look inside lots of different big companies' cultures. So, so I felt like I was getting my culture fix by helping work in some of these other companies. But I'm glad now to be home at Norwalk. You know, it's it's it to see these craftsmen make a piece of furniture and the sewers sewing and the upholsterers upholstering and the frame makers making the frames and make it all and we make one at a time and we make thousands of them and so to watch that um symphony happen is amazing and and tim halleck who runs the plant is the conductor and and he makes it possible for me to do what i do so it's really great you know I'm so glad that the invisible hand has brought you to us today and uh, I'm grateful that you've been able to spend some time with us in our home well thank you my guest this week has been Caroline Hippel (laughs) thank you for joining me thank you Bill and I'll see you in Vegas 